that, uh, that we were just uh, wondering whether Spike Milligan was hiding in the computer <laughs> there. But uh, perhaps he wasn't. Perhaps he was. Um, I've got an easy job tonight. My job is simply to introduce Simon and, and listen as avidly as I think you're going to to some of the things that he's got to say. This is the beginning of the season of Motorsport Legends um, uh, talks, and I think the beauty of this one is that we're going to hear about an enormous number of people because Simon is one of the world's most eminent, I guess you would say, motorsport historians. He's got a prodigious memory. He's talked to more people than you can count, and uh, he's, he's deliberately chosen a a very interesting cross-section of them to talk about tonight. Um, the other thing about him uh, is that, just as an aside, Simon is entirely responsible for the, uh, f for the better part of my career. He hired me, took me off the street, <laughs> didn't he? Very much, yeah. <coughs> and uh, um, so I owe him one for that. Well, um, we owe it to you as well. But the... the the, the plan is to, is to work through some of the people that you'll see uh, shown in photographs. But first, I don't know, the, the, the story that, that follows Simon and always will is, is his fairly recent um, uh, bout in time as a film star. Uh, oh. I don't know whether this, uh, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but he played a key part in the Hunt Louder uh, film called Rush. And I would like him to start with that. If well, I, it's I don't know what your, your, your definition of key part is. I mean, I certainly wasn't in a key part. Basically, what happened was that the, uh, the director, uh, Ron Howard, who, who made the film, I don't how, how many people in here have seen Rush? Oh, pretty, pretty good cross-section. Um, he decided that the best way to tell the story was to have voiceovers from commentators. International films these days are sold in Japan, they're sold in Germany, they're sold in South America. And so they have different soundtracks depending on where they're going. And he decided that he would have commentators um, as there would have been in 1976 commentating on radio and television. And he, uh, he cast a nice little uh, young uh, French commentator, a French actor to do the French commentary. He cast a nice little Japanese actor to be the Japanese commentator. And he was about to cast a nice young uh, actor to be the British commentator. And so one of his henchmen said, actually, I think the guy who really did the commentary in 1976, I think he's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he must be very old, but uh, anyway, so I got a phone call, I had an audition, and, and I ended up do, doing, doing the uh, not very considerable part. I mean, if you blinked, or if you were sort of filling your face with another mouthful of potato crisps in the cinema, you might well have missed me, but it, it was tremendous fun. But what it really goes back to is 1976, which was when as I'm sure you remember, there was a, that, that was one of the most dramatic Formula One years because there was a battle between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda had a near-fatal accident uh, and then came back. 
and all but won the world championship. But then in the final race in Japan, where it was pouring with rain, Lauda, not because he was frightened, but because he thought the race should not be taking place, he thought it wasn't going to be a, a sensible race, it would be foolish. After two laps, he stopped. James Hunt uh, only finished uh, fourth in the race. Was it fourth? Fifth? Fourth, I think. And as a result, he was able to clinch the World Championship by one point. But the story I always tell is that um, I was about to do this commentary. I would, nowadays, if you're, if you're going to do a, a, a radio commentary, even more a, a television commentary, a horde of people fly out. There are people with boxes with all sorts of electronic gear in. But in those days, in 1976, I was sent on my own to Japan, and I basically had a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, which is what we had in those days, and a pair of pliers to try and kind of stick the wires together if it didn't work properly. And I was there completely on my own. And the, the BBC, once I'd got there, said, look, we can't possibly just listen to your voice banging on for two and a half hours. You've got to find a second commentator. So I had, with a, you know, a few hours before the race, I had to find somebody who spoke English who could come and sit in the commentary box with me. And I found Barry Sheen. Now, Barry subsequently in his career became very much a Jack Belair that you'd see on TV and so on. But in those days, he was a um, professional motorbike racer. He was a friend of James Hunt's. He'd come to Japan to watch James Hunt race. And I found him soaked to the skin, wandering rather lost about the paddock. And I said, do you want somewhere dr dry to watch the race? And he said, yeah, sounds, a good, sounds like a good idea. So I said, well, you'll, I'm going to have to put a microphone in your, um, in your hands, and you're going to have to talk, but at least you'll keep dry. So he came up to my commentary box. And he'd never done any radio or TV at that point. Of course, subsequently, he did a lot. And when you're about to do a... Um, you're about to start, in fact, we've just done it outside, when you're about to start using a microphone, you need to do what they call some words for level. And so that the people twiddling the knobs at the other end can make sure that the volume's all right. So we were going out, not only on the BBC in the UK, but this was going out on the BBC World Service, which just went all around the world in those days. And broadcast was about to happen. It was pouring with rain. The race had already been delayed. It was all pretty miserable. And I heard in my headphones this wonderfully blah BBC voice coming over thousands of miles saying, uh, hello, Tokyo. Uh, can we have some words for level on microphone one, please? So I switched on my microphone and I said, Mary had a little lamb, one, two, three. I had cornflakes for breakfast. Thank you very much, uh, microphone one, that's fine. Uh, you have a second commentator with you, I understand. You know, could we have some words on microphone two, please? So I nudged Barry and said, look, switch your microphone on and say something. So he switched his microphone on and he said, uh, well, here we are in uh, Mount Fuji. It's pissy with rain. <laughs> We've got about as much chance of having a decent race here as the Pope doing something naughty with a nun on the Lord in front of the Vatican. <laughs> and in my headphones, this, 
horrified silence. And then this wonderfully BBC voice just came back and said, uh, watch it, Tokyo. <laughs> and of course, the rest is history because there was that extraordinary race and, and James Hunt was champion by one point. But you were the person that decided who was going to be world champion. You, you backed your judgment and you told the world that Hunt was a champion when you didn't really know for sure that he that, was. That was very hairy. Um, you cannot imagine the chaos. And of course, in those days, there was no electronic timing gear. Everything is so high-tech now. There was an electronic scoreboard, a great sort of tall thing, rather like Blackpool Tower, which had lit up in bulbs the numbers of the first six cars. And I knew that James had to be fourth in order to win the championship by one point. And as the race ran into its final lap, everybody's lap charts, you, you needed to keep lap charts in those days. All their lap charts had sort of gone wrong and blown up because you couldn't see what was happening. Everybody was on different, uh, different laps. But I had my good friend and colleague, Quentin Spurring, also wedged into the little box with us. And he was keeping an old-fashioned lap chart. He was just writing down the numbers of every car. as they He was the editor of Autosport at the time? Uh, was I? No, I'd stopped being the editor of Autosport. I think Quentin was the editor Quentin, of Autosport. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kept a lap chart. And as the race finished and the chequered flag fell, the lights on the score, scoring tower disagreed with what Quentin said. And so the official results were up there. James, in the car, could see those lights. And because the numbers up there were wrong, James was sure that he had failed to win the world championship. He was in a rage because it showed that he was in fifth place. And I had to make a decision. I was speaking to the world and I either had to go by the official scoreboard or I had to go by my chum's lap chart. And I took a lightning decision. I went with the lap chart. And I said, as James Hunt crossed the line, I said, James Hunt is the champion of the world. And just after I'd said that, fortunately, the lights on the scoreboard were altered because otherwise my broadcasting career, which was then in its very early stages would have come to a shuddering halt. <laughs> right, beautiful story. But the reason we're here is because over the last 10 odd years, you interviewed 125 luminaries from the world of motorsport. And we're going to talk through some of them tonight. This is the kind of uh, uh, list we have. And on my list, it says number one, Sterling Moss times two. Yes, because we actually, I actually. Have you got, you've got the gizmo, yeah. haven't you? Uh, if I press this button, if things are working, there is Sterling Moss. Great race. You see he's got a cigarette in his mouth. He's got the, both of those pictures are of the Rob Walker Lotus 18 at the Monaco Grand Prix. He won it two years running. Uh, f and of course, the Lotus 18, uh, particularly by that year, was not... Um, in theory anyway, anything like as quick as the works Ferraris. Moss got pole position. And he, the, the race in those days, Grand Prix were proper lengths back then. It was 100 laps round Monaco. And Sterling had got pole position. I can't quote his time, but whatever his pole position time was, 
at the end of the race, he managed to get in front of the Ferraris, which were potentially much quicker, and stay ahead of them. He led from start to finish. And at the end of the race, he sat down and divided his elapsed time from the flag falling to the chequered flag falling and divided it by 100. And he was very proud of the fact that his average lap time over the whole of those 100 laps was only 0.8 of a second quicker, sorry, 0.8 of a second slower than he'd set his pole position time on. I think that's an extraordinary achievement because it showed how consistent the man was. I actually did two articles with him. He was one of the first people I had. The articles were called Lunch With, and it was Lunch with Sterling Moss or Lunch with Mario Andretti or whoever it might be. And I may say I was the luckiest lad in the world because my job every month was to go somewhere in the world and sit down and buy lunch for somebody interesting, somebody interesting from, from the motor racing world. I did it for ten and a half years, and it was the best job anybody could possibly have had. Um, Sterling, uh, actually, would always say, happy to talk to you, boy, but I'm much too busy. I never eat lunch. I'm too busy. And in the end, I've discovered, talking to Susie, his wife, that actually what he did when he was hungry in the middle of the day was that he would go. I mean, no sort of grandiose, I am the most famous racing driver in the world. He would go to a little sandwich bar round the corner from where he lived. And he would stand in a queue and he would always have coronation chicken on white. So my lunch with Sterling Moss consisted of queuing up in the sandwich bar and getting <laughs> coronation chicken on white. And of course, we had the photographer shooting us buying the, the, the sandwiches in the queue. How it all began was that Motorsport decided uh, that they wanted a, a, an interview with Max Mosley. And Max Mosley, by then, was living in some state in Monte Carlo. And I knew Max Mosley because I'd known him in his disreputable days. I actually raced against him when we both were extremely slow racing drivers in Clubman's formula. Um, and then I'd known him all the way through him setting up March, telling everybody he had huge sponsorship, when in fact he didn't have a bean. And uh, so they said, we'd better get Taylor to go and uh, do this interview with, with Mosley. So I went to Monaco. Uh, Max said, let's go out to lunch. So we sat and had lunch in the casino square. And Max told me all sorts of fairly astonishing things about his life in motor racing. Not very much about his life outside motor racing, I'm happy to say. <laughs> and um, we had lunch. And so I called the article Lunch with Max Mosley. And it seemed to work and it took off. And from then on, I was having lunch with somebody or other um, every single month. Some of the people that I had lunch with, of course, are no longer with us. Um, and the second man that we can quickly mention is a man who sadly only left us recently. Uh, John Surtees was fascinating when we had our lunch together. We talked for about four hours. And again, as a working journalist, I knew John. I knew what John was like in his racing days and then in the difficult days when he was running his own Formula One team and was badly let down by a sponsor, the manufacturers of loudspeakers, Bang & Olufsen. The boss of the company had a son who fancied himself as a racing driver. 
and Bang & Olufsen's boss said to John Surtees, we will give you X million pounds. Um, and John said, thank you very much, and signed the contract. And the Mr. Bang or Mr. Olufsen, whichever it was, said, oh, by the way, um, you'll see that I've inserted in the small print that my son will be your number two driver. And John said, well, we better have a test session and see what, that's, what he's like. And after about four laps of a quiet test session, John, who always spoke as he found, said, your son is completely hopeless and he's not going to drive one of my cars. And surprise, surprise, the loudspeaker might away. And that really actually was the end of, uh, of the Surtees Formula One team. But by the time he and I had lunch, he was very much more a mellow character. Um, it was sadly after the tragedy of Henry's death. But he was, um, apart from that tragedy, he was a man who kind of come to, come to terms with his career and the, not only the great days of winning the World Championship for Ferrari, but also uh, the, the, the mistakes that he'd made. And without going into the story, I'm sure a lot of you know that he had a huge row at Ferrari. He fell out with Eugenio Dragoni, who was the team manager, whom he never liked, and Dragoni hated him. And he jumped into his car in the middle of the Le Mans. It was on the front for 24 hours, um, because, of course, Ferrari were doing sports car racing as well as Formula One in those days. And he drove his uh, Ferrari 275 GTB, which had come with his, uh, with his drive, to Maranello without stopping and leapt out of the car when he got to Maranello and stormed into Enzo Ferrari's office and said, it's him or me. And of course, Enzo Ferrari said, well, it's him. Mm. And John Surtees had to leave Ferrari in the middle of the season, go and drive for Cooper, which was the only team, not a particularly competitive team, that had a place, had a seat, and yet he still came second in the World Championship that year. But when I asked John about him, uh, about that incident, he smiled and looked at the ceiling and said, maybe I was a little bit quick on the boil that day. <laughs> Tell us, there was a story that you were telling us that involved John Surtees in a Catholic church. <laughs> I can't vouch for the, uh, um, for the absolute truth of this story because I was told it by a dear friend of mine who's very close to the Surtees family who happens to be in this room. So, um, if the story is a good story, but not quite true, um, then it's his fault and not mine. But John, being an organized chap and deciding how, to, uh, how his life should come to an end, he decided that he wanted to have his funeral in a magnificent Catholic monastery not far from where he lived. And so he went to see them and said, look, I think, uh, you know, when the time comes, I'd like my funeral to take place here. And the chief monk said, but Mr. Surtees, you're not a Catholic. And John said, well, no, but I did win the world championship for Ferrari. That's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and uh, so just proceeding through yeah. further into Ferrari territory, I guess. Uh, on your list is Chris Amon. Yeah, the furthest I went for lunch was New Zealand. Um, and I was actually in the... I, I flew into New Zealand at about 8 o'clock in the evening, and I left at about 6 o'clock the next afternoon. Um, but I'd always wanted 
to sit down with Chris Amon, by then obviously in his late 60s, uh, and talk to him about what it was like being uh, in the Ferrari team, leading the Ferrari team in those fascinating days in the 1960s. And the extraordinary thing about Chris Amon was that he was the most unassuming, modest, gentle, charming man. I was going to fly in to um, Auckland. He lived six hours' drive south of Auckland. And I said to him, look, I'll, I'll get a hire car and I'll, I'll um, come down and see you. He said, no, no. He said, uh, I'll drive up to see you. He drove his car for six hours up to Auckland. Uh, we met in a little cafe, which is his choice. He was delightful. And uh, during the meal, I said, why did you choose this particular little cafe? And he said, well, have you looked next door? The cafe was part of a kind of semi-detached building. And we went out of the restaurant, we looked at the little building next door, and it was a disused, what had obviously been a very small little filling station, sort of place with a couple of, work, a couple of petrol pumps and a little workshop and a, a flat above it. And he said, that workshop, that little garage, was Pop McLaren's business. And Bruce McLaren was born upstairs. And that's why Chris Amon wanted to have lunch there. Did, um, you, know him? did, you, had, did you know him already? Had you run not really, no. Um, because, I mean, I did, because um, I didn't really know him while he was driving Ferrari. I knew him when he was driving for Max Mosley at the beginning of the 70s. But... As Formula One became harsher and more ruthless and more professional, so Chris uh, really, he, he was too nice a man to be a top Formula One driver. He was brilliant in the cockpit. I mean, one of the fastest of all. But when he started driving for Max Mosley, for example, uh, the deal he did with Max was that he was going to be paid £30,000 to be the number one March driver. I mean... £30,000 for a season of Formula One racing. It seems ludicrous now. And Max had just set up the team, was telling everybody he had all this sponsorship, but didn't. The whole thing was rocky in the extreme. Uh, but anyway, £30,000 was the deal, and Max said, I'll pay you a third now. And sure enough, there was £10,000. Chris had to chase very hard for the second £10,000, which he was meant to get by the 1st of June, but didn't. I think in the end he got that. But as telling me this story in New Zealand, he said, I'm still waiting for the third £10,000. <laughs> but he was kind of good-humoured about it. Um, the next man, because we're talking about nice people, this is Dan Gurney. Now, anybody who ever knew Dan Gurney... Um, in Formula One, of course, he won a Grand Prix in a car that he'd built himself, the Eagle, which was an extraordinary achievement on its own. He was a great Formula One driver uh, for Ferrari, uh, for Porsche, when they were in Grand Prix racing. And, of course, he then ran a terrific uh, Formula One team. That is the Eagle winning the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. And that was a really great day. And I really wanted to have lunch with Dan Gurney because I knew he had a lot of stories which had never really come out. So I wrote to him and uh, I said, look, Dan, I'd really like to come. This is the sort of interview we do. They're very long interviews. There's 6,000 words. 
Um, I'll need to talk to you for about four hours, but I really hope you can do this. And after about two days, I got an email back which said, Dear Simon, it'd be absolutely great if you'd come over and have lunch with me. I'd really like you to do that, and it'll be really nice to see you again. But unfortunately, <clears throat> I'm not going to let you interview me because I'm working on a book of my life, and I've got so many good stories which have never been written, and I don't want to waste them. I want them to be in my book. That was the first page of the email. Second page said, I wrote that last night, and having slept on it, I thought, to hell with it, come over and have a good lunch, and we'll, I'll tell you all the stories, which he did. While we're talking about nice people and unassuming people, Jackie X. Of course, we all know he won Le Mans six times. Uh, a lot of people forget that in 1970, Jochen Rindt won the World Championship posthumously because he was killed at Monza. And the one man who could have beaten him was Jackie X. And in the last race of the season, Jackie X's car broke. And he said after the race, I'm really pleased because Jochen Rindt deserved to be champion, not me. And that's the sort of thing that you would get from Jackie X. When I agreed to see him. He said, come and um, come to Brussels, which he's got a lovely house in the middle of Brussels. Uh, he said, come on the train if you're coming from London, that's the easiest way. And I said, well, give me your address so when I get to the station I can jump in a cab and I'll have my photographer with me and we'll come round. And Jackie said, no, no, don't do that. I'll come to the station and meet you. And I mean... That seems to me extraordinary, that you have a great driver like that. And when we got into, we drew into Brussels Station, he was standing on the platform waiting for me. We went out to the car park, his car. I mean, you don't expect a modern Formula yeah. One driver uh, to, to behave like that. He was very much his own man, wasn't he? Isn't there a, a story about him in, in Spain, was it, where he, he was the one guy that started a race? Yes, there was a, there was a he, he never had any truck with safety. He thought motor racing was dangerous and he didn't want anybody to be hurt, but he didn't want to, as he saw it, motor racing to be spoiled by people reducing the challenge. He was marvellous around the Nürburgring. And he said, if you put Armco Barry around the Nürburgring, if you put runoff areas, it's not the same track as it was when it had tree trunks and barbed wire. That was where the challenge was. I wrote down here actually something else that he did, um, what, something else that he said. He said, if you're going to interview me, I don't really want to talk about me because it's not about me. Most of the winning in a motor race is done before the car gets to the track. The driver gets rich and famous, but he's only the last link in the chain. And another thing he said, mentally, racing drivers aren't really very grown up. <laughs> talking of speaking which, of which yes. <laughs> speaking of which, <laughs> <laughs> I actually said to the editor of Motorsport, one man I really cannot bring myself to have lunch with is Nigel Mansell. Um, I mean, obviously, when I was working... Uh, not so much as a journalist, but particularly as a broadcaster. I was having to interview Mansell every fortnight. I mean, he was the big British hero. The BBC wanted lots of Mansell. And he was very, very hard work. Um, 
Of course, he was an incredibly brave and determined and skillful driver, and he was a worthy world champion. But he was also a pain in the backside. And um, one of the stories I love, nowadays, if you watch on television, you can hear uh, what the drivers and the um, engineers are saying to each other. You couldn't in those days. And in those days, it was all quite primitive. You would have um, big headphones on, which were meant to seal out all the rest of the noise. Frank Durney, whom I also had lunch with, wonderful man, very funny man, um, he was the engineer on Nelson Piquet's car when Piquet and uh, Mansell uh, were both driving for Williams. I'm going to have to slightly kind of put asterisks <laughs> in this story, but um, Frank Durney was running Piquet. Patrick Head was running Mansell. And Patrick, again, a wonderful man. I was lucky to have lunch with him. He had a very loud voice, and he said exactly what he thought about anything and everybody at any moment of the day or night. And Frank Durney told me that in the middle of a race at Silverstone, British Grand Prix, all the noise going on, you know, and everything sort of... And he had his headphones clamped to his ears talking to Piquet. And Patrick Head was as far away from him as you are. And he had his headphones on. And Frank Durney said through his headphones talking to... Uh, um, uh, talking to PK, he could hear Patrick Head saying, Nigel, for <coughs> sake, stop <coughs> whinging and <coughs> drive the <coughs> car. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we actually had lunch, he, he was much more mellow. Where was it? Where, where did you meet him? Uh, where did I meet him? I think it was when he still had his... Oh, no, I met him on the top of a skyscraper in the middle of London. Um, on the sort of 94th floor, one of these things where they had a restaurant. Um, I mean, he lives in Jersey now. Um, he was more mellow, but he still held the old grudges. Lovely quote he said was when he and PK were in the same team at Williams. Of course, they loathed each other. And he said, PK had all the ingredients to be a nice person. He just chose not to be. <laughs> On Ayrton Senna, he said, because there's sort of arrogance about Nigel, but, but maybe justified. So he said, and this is probably the case, he, uh, he said of Ayrton Senna, in the end, he realised I was the only driver on the grid that he couldn't intimidate. Well, actually, that's quite interesting because part of Senna's technique was, I don't know whether he did it consciously or not, but he did intimidate people. And it was all part of the kind of psychological warfare that Ayrton Senna was particularly good at. And then another story about Mansell, which, of course, Mansell didn't tell me, but I went to Italy and had lunch with Riccardo Patrese, who was also with Nigel at Williams at one stage. This was when the active ride cars in Formula One were, were the thing. And they were terribly difficult to set up. And Mansell had got quite good at setting them up because he'd done so much of the testing. And there were adjusting knobs in the cockpit where you could adjust your active ride. And he and David Brown, his engineer, would work at this very hard. And during practice, Mansell would get his car absolutely right. And then when he came in, the engineer for PK's car would go and look at the settings and would copy them for PK's car. So Mansell 
having got the settings absolutely right, would then on his slowing down lap twiddle all the knobs <laughs> so that Patrese never knew which, which way was up. <laughs> now, here's a lovely man, Jochen Mass, uh, still very much around. He comes to the Goodwood revival. He was even at the Goodwood members meeting the other week. Um, and the main thing I can say about him is that we had lunch where he lives all year round in a little cottage up a hillside with a very beautiful wife. And it was a hot day and we sat having lunch cooked by the beautiful wife. Um, under the vin He has vines over his, um, his patio outside. But he is an honest man. He is a very entertaining man. <coughs> Um, he was, of course, James Hunt's uh, yeah, I was teammate. Say, did he have some Hunt stories? He, he did have some Hunt stories, um, but very affectionate ones, yeah. you know. I mean, I don't think James was easy. Um, we all know about James, you know, um, being the sort of um, extrovert with girlfriends and uh, the parties. But underneath all of that, James had enormous insecurities which really came out. He screwed himself up to win that world championship in 1976 and won it. But thereafter, it was almost as though he'd heaved a sigh of relief. He'd hit his target. And after that, he was never as quick again. And eventually, he walked away uh, in the middle of a season because he said, I, I can't do this anymore. It's very interesting. Damon Hill, a man for whom I have immense respect, and I was... Um, ecstatic when he won the world championship in 96. Uh, a really honourable, a very, very good driver. I mean, probably better than he, he's now given credit for. But a very honourable man, and a man who I think bears the scars of the fact that his father, who was not an easy man, I should think having Graham Hill as your dad was pretty tough. And then his father crashed and died uh, in that air, aircraft accident when Damon was 15. And I think all of that had been very difficult. He was carrying big baggage on his shoulders. And in a way, winning the World Championship was a way of getting the baggage off his shoulders. But then, when he retired from Formula One, he didn't really know what to do. When you've been screwing yourself up to this extraordinary pitch of effort and it's been occupying 24 hours 60 seconds of every minute, suddenly the pressure goes away. You've got a lot of money in the bank and you don't quite know what to do. And Damon has written a book which, unlike so many motor racing books, which are just ghosted by people like us, he wrote it himself. He wrote it 10 years after he'd retired from Formula One. He was very honest in it about his depression having left Formula One because he just suddenly this enormous drive and motivation had been taken away and he didn't quite know what to do. He's come through this. Um, he's now a very very sort of rounded and, and relaxed character. He's got television work, which he enjoys doing. And he's, for the second time in his life, really buried some demons. But he, the great thing about my lunches was that if you actually sit down with somebody for four hours and if you can manage to get their trust then they will talk to you very honestly. They also have to believe that if they say something which they would rather not see printed, 
they can trust you. I never allowed people I was interviewing to see the copy before it went to press. Occasionally people said, can I see that, old boy, before, you know, just before you put it to press? I say no, because that's not how it works. But if they trust you, um, and I mean, lots of people have told me quite personal things. They've treated me as a friend when I've been doing these lunches. Certainly some of them have. And uh, it, you, 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 have to kind of, uh, you have to kind of trust that. Um, well, just, just tell us a, an, another sentence or two about Jochen Maas. How good was he? Was he, was, was he hunt standard or better? Or? He was a wonderful sports car driver. Um, maybe, uh, and because he's such a nice man, if he was sitting where you are, I'd ask him that question, or he'd perhaps ask me what I thought. Um, I think he was a wonderful sports car driver, because rather like Jackie Ix, he was extremely intelligent. You don't win a 24-hour race without using your brains, um, which reminds me of a little James Hunt story. I remember sitting in the Marlborough Motorhome with James Hunt uh, one day, and um, it was after he'd retired. He was by then working as a TV commentator, and he was holding forth fairly grandly, and he said, you see, the thing is, Simon, he said, you can't get anywhere in Formula One. You certainly can't get to be world champion unless you're pretty intelligent. And at that moment, Nelson Piquet walked past the window and he said, mind you, there is an exception to every rule. <laughs> uh, the, the one other thing, though, about these interviews, three hours, four hours, almost everybody that I interviewed were people who had been great in motor racing, not only drivers, but designers, team managers, mechanics. And they were all talking about what they'd done in their lives perhaps 10, 20, even 30 years ago. If I wanted to go and sit down and interview Lewis Hamilton, and this isn't Lewis Hamilton's fault, I would probably get him for 10 minutes. I certainly wouldn't get him for four hours. But more to the point, I wouldn't get him on his own. There would be a PR lady sitting next to him. There would be probably a representative of the sponsor sitting on the other side. Somebody recording it as well. Absolutely. And yeah. you could not do the sort of no. searching, informal, truthful... But maybe when he's 45, you know. Maybe. But, well, uh, we'll see. <laughs> maybe. Um, another thing about these lunches was that I always said to the individual... You tell me where you want to have lunch. I will buy you lunch anywhere in the world. You just tell me where. Did anybody... Sorry, to, mm. I've been busting to ask you this. No, one. no, go on. Did anybody ever buy your lunch? <laughs> Did anybody ever pay? No, it didn't work like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, actually, um, I remember Alan de Cattenay, for example. You, you could learn a lot about, um, uh, about your, your, your character that you were lunching. He insisted on going to Bibendum, which is a very expensive restaurant. Yeah. Um, Brian Redman, one of the men I really love in this world, uh, typically uh, Brian Redman, he wanted to go to Harry Ramsden's fish and chip shop, <laughs> which is, of course, what we did. We had big mugs of tea and very good fish and chips. Did any, also, another stupid question. Did anybody ever see you having lunch with somebody and say, I know what you're doing. I see, you know, I read motorsport. I, I see these stories. Uh, I don't think... Well, if they did, they were too polite to, to interrupt. Oh, what did happen is that um, you would get people who would come up and ask for autographs. Ah. And there's a fascinating thing about this. 
if I'd been having lunch with Lewis Hamilton, which I wasn't, the people asking for Lewis Hamilton's autograph would have been from the ages of, I don't know, eight to 24. Um, if I was having lunch with Nigel Mansell, they would be in their 30s or 40s. If I was having lunch with Sterling Moss, they'd be in their 50s and 60s. The people that you really admire are the people who were great drivers in your youth. And that was pretty much uh, the way it worked. Just finishing off about um, where, where we had lunch, some of the people uh, would ask me to come to their house and then their wives would make wonderful meals. Um, well, in Jackie Stewart's case, various kind of servants came and went. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, Emanuele Pirro, another delightful chap, great character, lives in a beautiful house just north of Rome, and he loves cooking. And he cooked pasta for me and the photographer, and the wonderful picture that the photographer took, which was in motorsport, was of Emanuele Pirro wow. in his kitchen making spaghetti, which was We great. don't have that, do we? Um, actually, yes, Emmanuel Pirro is probably going to come up. Um, I was going to put up Mark Webber first, because oh, while we're talking about where we were having lunch, I said to Mark Webber, right, and incidentally, Mark Webber was a current driver, but Mark Webber, he's an Australian, he speaks as he finds, he tells the complete truth. There was, even though he was, he'd left Red Bull, he was then a, a Le Mans racer for Porsche, uh, but there was no question of a PR listening to what we were saying. He just came on his own. And I said, Mark, where would you like to have lunch? Buy your lunch anyway. He said, I don't give a stuff, mate, where we have lunch. It's just got to have somewhere where I can land my helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> so I found a very nice pub in Sussex. Uh, he said, I'll be there at 1 o'clock, mate. And at 12.58, over the trees, there he came. He popped it down by the pub. We had three hours of fun and laughter, and then he took off again, and off he went. Um, so that was Mark Webber. Um, yes, here's Emmanuel Pira. I don't know if we've got... Yes, we have! There he is! There he is, cooking my meal. Great man, great man. Um, what was his claim to fame? I mean, he didn't, he didn't go as far up the pole as some of these, did he? Not in Formula One. He never really was in the right place at the right time, but a brilliant um, endurance racer. Very, very good indeed. An intelligent man, which, which obviously helps. Um, I scribbled down here, of course, a lot of the people over 10 years that I lunched, sadly, are no longer with us. Uh, Tom Wheatcroft, great character. Jack Sears, Roy Salvadori, who was living in a flat in Monaco. Uh, Frank Gardner. I went to Australia and had, Frank Gardner, uh, and had lunch with Frank Gardner in his golf club. And that was about six months before he died. He was getting quite frail. But the old Frank Gardner humour was still there. He said, well, I, I got in touch with him and said, look, I want to talk about your life. He said, don't want to do that. He said, what's the point of that? If you look over your shoulder, all you get is a crick in the neck. <laughs> um, people like uh, Gordon Murray, um, clearly a genius. In fact, I started off the article with the Oxford English Dictionary definition of a genius and Gordon Murray ticked, and still ticks, all the boxes. But what was fascinating about him, and you would know this, Steve, because you know Gordon extremely well, and you've written a lot of great st stories about what he's done. To somebody as gormless as me, I, I can't change a light bulb, 
But when he was telling me about the amazing things, not only that he'd done in Formula One, but which he was now doing with building an economy, road car and so on, he was able to talk to me and make it understandable. He loves simplicity, doesn't he? He loves simple yeah. concepts, but yeah. applied in a very sophisticated way. Well, he talks, not simply, but, mm. but extremely understandably. Yeah, lucid, yeah, indeed. Um, Frank Williams, I want to hear you on Frank Williams. Frank Williams, all right. Before we get to Frank Williams, okay, just because right. I shall forget <laughs> it, I, um, t two things that raised a smile. Richard Atwood, delightful man. He's still racing at Goodwood. Real kind of gentleman, you know, sort of rather... He went to Harrow, and he was a frightfully good chap. Actually, a, a much better driver than people remember. When he joined as a very young newcomer, he joined Tim Parnell's team. Tim Parnell was running uh, a Lotus BRM team for him, and the driver already there was Mike Halewood. Sadly, of course, Mike Halewood died long before I would have been able to have lunch with him. I would love to have had lunch with Mike Halewood. But when Richard Atwood told me that when he arrived at uh, the workshop to look at the car he was going to be racing, and Mike Halewood was sort of wandering about, and in the cockpit, as they often used to have, still have, you know, there was under the switch for the fuel pump, there was a little label saying fuel pump, and under the ignition switch, there was a little label saying ignition. And of course, Mike Halewood had been in there, and he put by the gear lever a little label saying gear lever, <laughs> and on the steering wheel, he put a little label saying steering wheel. <laughs> and... Uh, our good friend Murray Walker, who, funnily enough, I had lunch with Murray Walker last week, um, and he, he's 92, or 93, one of the two, and um, he's a little bit kind of doddery on his pins, but once he's sitting down at the lunch table, he is Murray Walker! <laughs> and uh, when I did the, <laughs> when I, when I did the, uh, the lunch with him... Um, I was talking about how did he feel when James, he was told suddenly that James Hunt, who just retired from Formula One, and Murray and James, Murray always thought James, you know, didn't really behave as well as he should. And uh, Murray was told on a te telephone call that his new co-commentator was going to be James Hunt. And I wrote down exactly what he said. He said, I was literally gobsmacked. <laughs> To put it mildly. <laughs> All right, let's go on to Frank Williams, who should be here. There he is. A wonderful, wonderful man. Um, I have never heard Frank Williams. Uh, he had his accident, what, 20 or more years ago. Uh, I was lucky enough to know him when he was a Formula 3 driver. And then when he was scratching around, ducking and diving, trying to get his first Formula One uh, team together. But I have never in any way heard him show any regret or blame yeah. or... Um, th th there is no way that that ghastly accident, which put him in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, has in any way affected how he approaches life. He is... Um, you know, not very well now. Um, he, he's, he's now in his early 70s, and clearly his medical problems are extreme. He gets tired very quickly. But I went and had... Well, I didn't have lunch with him because, of course, he can't eat normally. 
um, because, you know, his hands don't work. But I sat in his office. We roared with laughter. He was very funny and very witty um, and very bright, looking back over all his years in Formula One. And you couldn't hope to meet a more positive man than Frank Williams. And the accident that put him into a wheelchair for the rest of his life did not in any yeah. way reduce his positive approach to life. No, I can, I, I've got a little bit on the side of that. It, it, I can remember trying to talk to him about the accident just in a crass way, as you do. And, and uh, he, all he would say was, I'm very fortunate. And he would say, he, he, he greeted all remarks about, about his, his difficulties with, I'm very fortunate. You know, one, I've been able to afford to keep myself alive, and, and two, I've been doing the things I wanted to do. Uh, as long that, as that, that's a great story. I mean, that really sums the man up. Um, if we're talking about Frank Williams, we also have to talk about uh, one of the most extraordinary men I've ever had lunch with. Actually, I didn't have lunch with him. It was better than that. And it's this man. Um, I always wanted to have lunch with Ron Dennis. God, we're going to have to watch the time. I've only got halfway through my list. Nobody's left, Simon. Nobody's when left. you get bored, wave at me. Um, Ron Dennis's PR man was a lovely man called Matt Bishop, who used to work with us at, at Haymarket, used to edit uh, one of our magazines, F1 Racing. He then went to McLaren, and I said to Matt, look, for heaven's sake, you've got to get Ron to sit down and have lunch with me. He said, well, we might be able to do that. And I said, but I need him for four hours. No, I think I said three hours. I want Ron Dennis for three hours. He said, blimey, that's a tall order. Well, I'll see what I can do. And some weeks, months later, Matt rang me up and said, right, if you can be at the McLaren Technology Centre at 12.30 on Tuesday week, Ron Dennis will give you three hours. So at 12.29, I was there. And I don't know how many of you have been to the McLaren Technology Centre. It's one of the most remarkable buildings in the world. And Matt met us. We sat down at the table and we waited and we waited. And finally at 10 to 2, Ron Dennis appeared and said, oh, sorry, I'm a bit late. I'm having a difficult day. We managed to get the photographs taken and he left at 20 past two and I got nothing. And I said to Matt, look, is there anything you can do? He said, I'll see what I can do. Three months passed and then Matt came on the phone one day and said, what are you doing this evening? Can you go to Ron Dennis's house this evening? So I went to Ron Dennis's house. I was told to be there at 6.30. Um, when I got there, Ron hadn't actually got back from, from work. And Ron's house, I won't go into detail because I could spend the whole evening talking about my <laughs> evening with Ron Dennis, but Ron has the most enormous kind of faux Georgian pile. And in front of it is this enormous gravel driveway. And it is true that twice a year, Ron Dennis has all that gravel taken up and washed and put back again. And I park my car diffidently at the very extreme corner of this enormous gravel driveway. And as I was just parking it, one of his staff, one of his domestic staff, came scurrying out to me and said, um, I'm afraid Mr. Dennis doesn't allow anybody to park on the parking area 
You have to park behind the back because it looks neater that way. Anyway, Ron appeared um, and he was absolutely delightful. We talked for about an hour and a half in his house and then he said, let's go to the pub. So he drove in some enormous Mercedes and I went with him uh, talking as we went. No photographer this time, you see, because the photographs had already been taken. So it was just me and Ron. Yeah. We went to the pub, we sat in a corner of the pub, we had fish and chips, I think, and uh, um, Ron drank half a pint of beer very slowly, but he did. And they threw us out of the pub at about 10 to midnight. And he was absolutely wonderful, fascinating. What was really great about him is he knows that everybody laughs at him behind his back because he's so kind of neat and tidy and, and, and sort of obsessive about all this sort of thing. And he kind of laughed at himself about this. But although he laughs at himself, you, you mustn't laugh no, at it. You know, no. it, it, but I, I think Ron Dennis, we, we talked about his childhood and how he was born in total poverty um, and left school at 15 and became uh, a mechanic. And what he has built, that an extraordinary company with 3,000 employees making wonderful road cars um, and everything done to his particular rather absurd standard. I think he's a remarkable man. I think it's very, very sad mm. that uh, he has been ejected from McLaren. We could talk a lot about that, but I'm going to go straight on to... Now, you probably don't recognise either of those two men. On the right with the funny hat on, is Peter War, who spent most of his racing career as the Lotus, Team Lotus uh, team manager. But for a while, he went and worked for a complete madman called Walter Wolf. And that's Walter Wolf. There is the Wolf car with Jodie Schechter driving it at uh, Monaco. Now, Walter Wolf is a fairly obscure figure, but I thought if I could go and have, if I could find Walter Wolf, because after he'd done Formula One for a few seasons, throwing lots of money around, the man obviously had millions, he then suddenly disappeared again, and nothing more was ever heard of Walter Wolf. And I thought if I can find Walter Wolf, this will be really interesting. So I finally traced him to a ranch in northern Canada. I never actually got to the ranch, although a friend of mine who found it said that when you arrived at the ranch, enormous place, huge gates, and just outside the gates there was an enormous dog kennel with an enormous dog in it. And a notice over the dog kennel said, never mind the dog, beware of the owner. <laughs> anyway, I finally got him to meet me in Vancouver, and we talked about his, uh, his racing. I'd actually said to him, when I contacted him. Look, I don't want to talk, because I knew he had a sort of fairly interesting past, and for all I knew, had a fairly interesting present. So I said, look, all I want to do, Walter, is talk to you about your racing. D don't need to talk about anything else. So he talked about his racing, and that took a couple of, uh, about a couple of hours. I thought, well, what, what are you doing now? I said, Walter, why don't you ever come back to Europe? He said, well, I, I can't come back to Europe. Interpol have a warrant out for my arrest. <laughs> <laughs> now, here, 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 is a, here is a wonderful, wonderful man. A.J. Foyt. Um, one of, I think the first overseas lunch I ever did was with Mario Andretti. 
I went to Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and we got into his Lamborghini Countach, and we went to the local hamburger bar. But he had made sure that in the hamburger bar there was a bottle of wine, Californian wine, which came from his own vineyard that he's got in California, which was quite stylish. I wanted to have lunch with um, A.J. Foyt, and I was actually having lunch with Kenny Brack, uh, who won Indianapolis for A.J. Foyt. And I said, God, I'd love to talk to her. I'd love to have lunch with A.J. Foyt. And he said, well, I've got his number on my mobile phone. I'll call him. So he, he called up A.J. Foyt, and I heard this conversation going on. He said, well, there's this guy, you know, wants to come and have lunch with the English journalist. There was a long pause at the other end of the phone, and then I could hear coming out of, out of the phone, is this Limey a good guy? <laughs> so Kenny said, yeah, yeah, he's okay. You better tell him to come. So I flew to Houston, drove out into the wilds of Texas, and found A.J. Foyt. He has this huge facility, because he's still running IndyCar teams. He's 80 now. And um, there was nothing anywhere around. And he said, only place to have something to eat is we got a Mexican, has a little shack, serves a hamburger. We'll go there. So we went to this extraordinary place. We actually took a picture of AJ, who's very big now. I mean, he's much bigger than he is than that there. And we took a picture of him leaning up against the bar of this Mexican's hamburger joint with all the kind of menu written up behind him. And we had... I mean, it was probably the most revolting piece of meat I think I've ever eaten. And it was huge. And I was doing my best to ply through this. I'd forgotten, when I, because I'd said to him, he, he said, all we can do is have this hamburger. And I said, rather foolishly, forgetting that A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti have a bit of history, you know. And I said to him, uh, don't mind having a hamburger at all, A.J., that'll be fine. In fact, when I went to see... Mario Andretti, we had a hamburger. And the temperature in the room kind of went down <laughs> about three degrees. And anyway, we went and we ate this hamburger. I was plying my way through this hamburger, and AJ looked across at me and said, how's your hamburger? I said, oh, it's really nice, AJ. It's absolutely great. <laughs> Is it better than Andretti's? <laughs> <laughs> OK, um, lots more I could tell you about AJ Foyt, but here's an extraordinary man, Andy Green. Uh, the fastest man on earth. Um, we had lunch in the Bluebird restaurant, of course, and he was charming, but pretty kind of buttoned up. I mean, he was, you know, he was a, um, a phantom jet pilot, and he, he was kind of very courteous, but you, would, you, you wouldn't want to cross him, really. He's a, he's a tough man. He's got but a he, kind of script, hasn't he? he just uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. But his figures, figures he comes out with, um, the distance that they had to run with thrust, SSC, to do... I mean, he's going to do 1,000 miles, he thinks, but then I think he did 860. It was a 13-mile stretch. To break the world record, you have to be timed over one mile. It was 13 miles because it took 6.5 miles to wind it up to its nearly 900 miles an hour. And then it took six and a half miles to stop it. And then it had the measured mile in the middle. But he told me, written this down, I said, what about the acceleration, Andy? What, how does that go? He said, well, the first bit of it is slow. 
Naught to 100 takes 20 seconds, mm. which is kind of slower than a Golf GTI. Mm. But he said 200 to 700 also takes 20 seconds. <laughs> People often ask me who was my favourite lunch with, and it was with this man. This is Professor Sid Watkins. Um, the great thing about Sid, he was a hugely skilled brain surgeon during the week, and at weekends, because Bernie Eccleston asked him, he would go to each Grand Prix, he would spend the entire race strapped into a car with its engine running and a former Formula One driver in the driving seat, wearing his hot gear, because when there was an accident, he could get there very, very quickly. And he treated everybody, whether it was Bernie Eccleston or Ayrton Senna, or whether it was some trippy British motor racing journalist like me, treated you all absolutely the same. And um, I said I wanted to have lunch with him. He said, fine, come up to... He lived on the, in the Scottish borders, wonderful house in Berwick overlooking the Tweed. He said, you can come to lunch. So I went up there. I think I flew to Edinburgh and then got a hire car, went to see him. And I got there in time for lunch. We had lunch sitting in his kitchen with his wife making us a spread. And the stories and the talk just went on and on all afternoon. And we were still talking at half past seven. And he said, well, come on, lad, we better have some dinner. <laughs> so... We drove into the town. We had a very good dinner. And we got back. I mean, I was meant to be flying home, you know, the, uh, during the afternoon. Anyway, we went back to his house. Uh, Susan, his delightful wife, who's also herself a, um, a, a very good author of historical novels, she went to bed. And we sat up until three in the morning. I, I don't normally drink whiskey. I, I didn't quite know what had hit me. <laughs> Sid is very keen on whiskey. was, bless him. And finally, um, Sid went to bed at about half past uh, three. He motioned me into the spare room and I lay down in the bed for a bit. Half past six, I got up and went to the airport and flew home. <laughs> the trouble with my lunch with Sid Watkins, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> was that so many of the stories, he knew so many of the drivers personally. I mean, he said, you know, I have seen all these guys in their underpants. <laughs> An awful lot of what he told me, I couldn't really publish. Um, but he was particularly close to Ayrton Senna. Sid loved fishing. Ayrton Senna uh, learned fishing, staying with Sid up in that house in Berwick. Because Sid and, and, uh, and Senna had an extraordinary relationship. And Sid told me, I don't think I put this in the article in the end, but Sid told me this quite moving story. You've got to remember that it was Sid Watkins who was first at the scene of Senna's accident. And Senna died in his arms. And he was very, very fond of Ayrton. And he told me that only a few days before Imola... Senna said to him, Senna was the, the best racing driver in the world without question. And he said to Sid, sometimes 
I think I'd really like to stop all this. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And Sid said, well, for God's sake, if you don't want to do it anymore, stop. Stop today and we'll go fishing. And Ayrton said, I can't. I've got contracts, I've got responsibilities, I've got a whole team depending on me. I can't stop. And a few days later, he was killed. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary. Um, so that's Sid. <coughs> I, I am aware of the time, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've only got a couple more people I'd love to show you. Um, now, here is a real character. Some of you may not even know that this is David Piper. Um, David Piper has been a privateer all his life. Um, he has the manner of a country gentleman. He's very polite. He smokes his pipe. He's absolutely charming. He is probably the toughest wheeler dealer I've ever met. He's absolutely ruthless. And he has managed, starting with nothing in the early 50s, to make a living out of motor racing all his life. And as he's gone on, he has a shed. That's where we took that photograph. That's a shed behind his house. He lives at sort of Hartley Whitney down the A30. And in that, there, there is a Ferrari P3. Completely priceless. Probably... 45 million quid. Out in the back, in the open air, there was a Porsche 917 under a tarpaulin. <laughs> uh, he had Lola C7. He had all these things. Oh, well, you know, chap, I just sort of, you know, I never got round to selling them, really. <laughs> and I mean, he must be sin sitting on hundreds of millions of quid. Um, I remember he told me a story about his, one of the first races he went to. He did a race in Ireland. He had a little Lotus 6. And because there was a huge fatal accident in the race, he ended up the winner, which completely astonished him. And in the pub afterwards, this tall, blonde man came up to him and said, David was prematurely bald. I mean, he was fairly bald at the age of 25. The chap came up to him and said, sort of tall man with sort of whitish blonde hair, came up to him and said, you're pretty bald, aren't you? Look as though you need some hair restorer. And poured a full pint of Guinness over his head. <laughs> that was Mike Hawthorne. <laughs> and uh, I said, um, what happened after that, David? He said, well, I wrung out my clothes, a bit wet, and then um, Mike Hawthorne and I went out and pulled a couple of birds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was when racing drivers were, were sort of racing right. drivers. Um, and I've only got one more picture, which... I always like to have my lunches not just uh, with racing drivers or famous team bosses or designers. These are three Lotus, Team Lotus mechanics from the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, David Lazenby in the Czech shirt, uh, sitting down waving his hands, is Cedric Seltzer, who was Jim Clark's uh, uh, mechanic when they won the, uh, the World Championship. And standing behind is Bob Dance, wonderful man, who still, I think he's 80, he is still working uh, for... At Hethel, yeah. He, he, yeah. he works up at Hethel for mm. what is now classic Team Lotus, which is run by, um, by Clive Chapman, Colin Chapman's son. And again, I just wanted to put the picture up there because 
they were absolutely wonderful. And we just laughed for three hours because their stories were so tremendous. And they're all wonderful blokes. And it's lovely that they're all still here. And that's pretty much the end of the list. I'm ashamed that I've been talking for an hour and a quarter. I really ought to stop. Well, <laughs> I don't think we're going to allow you to stop for a little while. Um, there, I, I'm sure there will be some people who, who, who like me, will be mesmerised by what they've heard, but also may have some questions. Let's, let's just do a few minutes of questions before... Uh, do you want to do this? Got the thing? microphone on. Okay, shall we go? We've got two in the front row, so we'll go to you first. Uh, I'm going to be naughty and ask a multi-part question. So uh, the first part of the question was really a way to say thank you for the lunch with items. Certainly when I arrived here and sat here and talked to Steve, it's one of the primary reasons that I pay my motorsport subscription, and it's with great sadness that you're not doing them. So fantastic. Oh, um, uh, so that's the, that's the first part of the question. Or um, The second part then is, um, you know, what was the, the most um, unusual story that you heard, you know, unexpected story from the lunches. Good luck with that. These questions are so difficult. Um, goodness. I think you've probably caught me on the hop because, I mean, some of the best questions, some of the best uh, um, uh, stories I put in, I suppose one lunch that I haven't mentioned um, which particularly stays with me uh, was Roger Penske. Now, not all of you may know that Roger Penske raced um, as a 19, 20-year-old uh, in America in the late 50s, early 60s. was brilliant. His cars were always the most immaculate. His team was always the best organised. He was absolutely <coughs> ferociously on top of everything. He then uh, became a boss of his own team, uh, running not only with huge success in Indianapolis, in IndyCar racing, um, but also he ran in Formula One with his own cars, the Penske. Um, he also now runs, as well as an IndyCar team, a NASCAR team. And primarily and above all of that, he has been the most prodigiously successful businessman. He now owns enormous companies all around the world. He owns car dealerships in Germany. Whenever you go to America, you will see trucks rolling down the uh, turnpike with Penske written on them. He, he owns something like 80 multi-million pound companies. And I wanted to have lunch with him. And he's finally, I mean, he, he wasn't interested. But finally, via his number two, who's a very nice man that I got to know, he was persuaded. He said, well, now look, um, I've just bought Marinello concessionaires, which, you know, so, so you sort of, you know, he bought a newspaper. He said, I've just bought Marinello concessionaires. I'm coming over to have a look at it. My jet is landing at 6.30 a.m. at Fair Oaks. Uh, if you can be at Marinello, I'll be at Marinello concessionaires. I'm landing at 6.30. I'll be at Marinello concessionaires at 6.43. So if you can be there at 6.43, I'll have a, a cup of coffee with you. So I was there at 6.43, needless to say. I mean, absolutely, you know, he's terrifying, this man. And um, he arrived and he said, well, I, look, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you now because I want to go and look at the Marino concessionaires. I've got to look round. They've got a spares depot full of Ferrari spares six miles away. I want to go and look at it. You better come with me. So we went to Marino concessionaires spares depot and he was going up 
ladders and poking in corners and so on. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I did finally get him to have a cup of coffee with me, which probably went on for nearly two hours in the end. Because although he said, he, he said, I'm not interested in the past. Life is about the future. Who cares about the past? He, this man is 76, I think, and is still running himself, all these companies around the world. Um, but afterwards, he did have the grace to say to me, I've quite enjoyed this because you've reminded I'd always done my research, of course, before I got to him. And he said, you've reminded me of things that I'd forgotten ever happened. This is a... a forgive me for, for taking up your question time, but one of the things that I wanted you to comment on was just how you keep these people talking for so long. I interview people myself, and I know that it's not always so easy to... to um, d despite what you say to them going in... To get well... The, the, there, are two th there are two things. One is, it's absolutely vital to do so much research, and I would spend three or four days solidly researching. Some people are obviously easier than others. So that when you're actually sitting down at the lunch table with the guy, you know all about him. Because there is nothing so insulting to a man being asked a question, and the questioner shows by asking a stupid question that he actually doesn't know enough about yeah. you. Mm -hmm. So you've got to do your research. That is vital. I mean, you know all about that. Uh, the other thing, fortunately, is that whether people are modest or arrogant, gloomy or good-humoured, everybody secretly loves talking about themselves. Mm. It's just human nature. And as long as you ask the right questions, and as long as you steer the conversation in the right direction, and also as long as they think you're honourable, as long as they think, you know, you're not a sort of, uh, you know, going to put something on the front page of the Daily Mail, as long as they believe that you are on their side. Mm. I just used to sit there with the voice recorder running and just listen. Yeah. Wonderful. Questions. Okay, I think we have a few more. Uh, Gareth, you seem eager. Um, not really about your talks, but somebody who you didn't interview, uh, Bernie Eccleston, who of course has just retired, uh, supposedly. Um, obviously, we, we all have our views on Bernie. Um, he has, uh, in his long career, I think he, he was, there's lots of positive things he did for Formula One and lots of negative things he did. Uh, on a balanced score sheet, how would you score Bernie? <laughs> Good luck. Um, I, I would certainly score Bernie, uh, well, diff different score sheets. Um, as a businessman, um, 100 out of 100. Um, and interestingly, um, an honourable businessman, because he was a hard bastard, but he always kept his word. All of Bernie's deals... Uh, with, with the people in Formula One. They were never written down. You did a deal with Bernie. He had a phenomenal memory, never forgot any detail. The deal he did with you was the deal that he stuck to. Nothing was written down. And, of course, if his memory was better than yours, then you lost out. Um, as, um, as somebody who has been good for motor racing rather than bad for motor racing, good for Formula One rather than bad for Formula One. Well, for the people who work in Formula One and earn their living, the team bosses and so on, that's 100 out of 100 too, because he's made them very wealthy man, men. 
For the spectators, I'm not so sure. Um, because, look, we haven't got time for me to tell you what my feelings are about Formula One today. I don't go to Grand Prix anymore. I used to go to 16 Grand Prix a year. Um, so there, I, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, who can tell? Of course, Bernie Eccleston was somebody that I would have loved to have taken to lunch. Because the other thing about Bernie is he's a very funny man. He's, he's hilarious, particularly as he tells you jokes with this deadpan face. You know, you think he's giving you a bollocking. In fact, he's telling you a joke. <laughs> I'm sure you tried it. How far I did, did you try get? him. And, and, and of course, I knew exactly what he'd say. And he did. He said, what do I want to do that for? Is he going to make me rich? You're going to pay me money? Why should I do it? Okay, Bernie. Yeah. No, he, was, he was never... Interestingly, two books have been written, two big books have been written about Bernie. One written by a man called Tom Rubithon, who set out to do the unexpurgated story of Bernie. Um, he was a man who, who wrote kind of um, expose books about politicians and things like that. Um, and he wrote a book like that about Bernie, which unfortunately wasn't very good because he didn't know enough about Formula One. The other book about Bernie was actually written with Bernie's approval and it was written by um, Sid Watkins' wife uh, who was a, 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 an author. Mm. Um, and it was factually very good but of course it was a bit polite. That was the trouble. What about Another yeah, question. One or two more. Got one more here. Any at the back? Got one there. One here at the front. Uh, did you ever get, to ever get to interview Enzo Ferrari? Enzo died long before um, I started to, to do these interviews, I'm afraid. Um, it, it would have been fascinating. What I did do was talk to people like Chris Amon and Mario Andretti, who'd, uh, who, who'd, who'd uh, driven for Ferrari. Um, and they all said he was an extraordinary man, but he was kind of very hard to read because he would sit, um, the lights in his office, rather yeah. like these lights here, because he would sit behind the lights, so if you were talking to him, you couldn't see his face. He also wore these dark glasses. There was a sort of mystery which he cultivated. I was also told, as you know, um, Enzo Ferrari's only son died of an illness, Dino, um, Dino died of an illness when he was, what, 27 yeah. or something like that. Early, early and that absolutely shattered Ferrari. That, of course, was why he... Muscular dystrophy, he, I think. Hmm? Muscular dystrophy. I, I met him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, that's why his name was, was um, oh, carried on in the, in, the, in the Dino car. I had but three conversations with Enzo. Did you? Tell us. Um, one was in the company of Mel Nichols. Oh, right. Mel Nichols was the editor of Car, I was the boy, and I was sort of shuffled in after him, <coughs> and we met Mr. Ferrari. En Mel had written a book about the Ferrari boxer. He wanted to present the book to Enzo, who signed it in the purple ink, um, and I was given a tie, which I still have, should have worn it. Um, the second time, I was in a company of a bunch of American journalists who were so cowed by the presence that, that because it was a big, long room, and he was quite uh, hard to, 
to see. And the thing, you know, they, they, we all asked the obvious question, which was, you know, what, what's your favorite race? What's your favorite car? And he had this minder called Franco Gozzi, who, yes. who had fed him this, this line, which, which became famous, but, but unhelpful, which was the next one, you know, which run, which, which was your favorite race? The next one, which is your favorite car? The next one. And he was, it's a shame because he was, uh, he was prevented from, from being interesting. But the only really substantial conversation I have was in the third meeting when he started to, to talk about his admiration for Margaret Thatcher, who he thought, she, who he thought was, a, was a wonderful woman. And, uh, and he, uh, he wanted to hear all about the country that was run by Margaret Thatcher. So we had a chat about <laughs> what it felt like to be in, in the UK. And that, that's, so I found myself informing Enzo Ferrari about the political situation in, in uh, the UK. So Which is a bit of a laugh for an Australian immigrant. Isn't it? You've never told me that before, Steve. That is a wonderful story. <laughs> have we got time for one more question? If we've got any more in the audience, do we one have any? One last question. Other question? One over there, Jake. Did you interview any uh, females involved in racing? I did. Um, I, I interviewed. Um, oh, God, I'm having a senior moment. Bella no. Um, I'm not Davina Galitza, but... Um, oh, um, yes. Sorry? Michelle Mutal? No. Desiree Wilson. Desiree Wilson? South African or Australian or... A lovely girl. Desiree Wilson. Desiree Wilson. Yeah. Desiree Wilson. Yeah. And she was great. And um, I actually think... And, and she sort of said this. Um, I mean, we didn't get much into sort of glass ceilings and things like that. But she regretted that everywhere she raced, John Webb particularly pushed her because he realised that she would be good publicity for Brands Hatch and so on. And she drove Formula One cars, but not in Grand Prix, in, you know, British Aurora-type Formula One races. But she felt that um, the fact that she was a girl got in the way because what everybody wanted to know was what was it like being the best female racing driver in the world, whereas she actually wanted to be a racing driver, mm. not a girl racing driver. And I think she was extremely good. I don't think she ever really ended up in the right car at the right time. But, um, yes, Desiree Wilson, I'm, I'm, she must forgive me for me briefly forgetting her name. She was very, very good. I think she was the only female. I never got to talk to Michelle Mouton, who I gather was brilliant driver. Pretty handy, yeah. Yeah. Um, are you? I guess we we just about. Uh, well, I think we're just about on time there. They're all um, longing to go. We could do one more question if there is one in the audience. I didn't see any other hands up, but oh, there is one up there, Jake. This will be the last question. Mm. Thank you for being so patient. Yes, Simon. I just wondered, um, with your sort of inside knowledge, there seems to be a complete. Um, clamped down on the news of Sterling Moss. Have you any knowledge of his condition? Yes, I certainly do. Pearl, my wife, who's sitting over there, and I have been to see him uh, two or three times. Um, he got a chest infection while he and Susie were in Singapore. They were about to get on, on a cruise. Sterling and Susie love going for cruises. And um, he got this, he picked up this chest infection and they decided that he shouldn't go on the cruise because if you get a chest infection in your 80s, it can be quite serious. 
and he was in hospital in Singapore for some time, uh, then flew home, and he's still um, in hospital in London. Uh, as I say, we, we've been to see him two or three times, and he's, um, he's, he's the, the same old Sterling. I took him in a book, because he, Susie said he's terribly bored, and I took him in a book. Uh, no, I, I don't think I can tell this story, but I shall try. Uh, you on. mustn't be offended. Go on, go on. Um, I, I took him in a book of 1950, about 1950s motor racing, and the book sort of fell open at um, uh, a picture of a curious hill climb car that Sterling hill climbed against called the Fry Kaiserwagen, oh, yes. which was raced by a man called Joe Fry. And I said, do you remember this, Sterling? He looked at it and said, oh, yes, Joe Fry. He said, he was a bit of a wanker. <laughs> So he's doing all right. <laughs> um, Excellent. Okay, thank you. And on that note, I think uh, we'll close it. <laughs> before I no, say before anything Before we worse. get anything worse, exactly. Um, been a fascinating evening, many, many stories. I'm sure there's many, many more to be told yet. And we hope to hear some of them in the future uh, when Simon comes back with uh, his Motoring Legend series a bit later in the year. So a big hand. Thank you, Simon and Steve. <laughs> Okay, we're now going to move on to the, the finale, which is the raffle.